continue our series called People in Prayer as we look at some of the um, prayers of uh, people in the Old Testament. And this morning we come to uh, one of my favourite characters in the whole Bible, Jeremiah. And our scripture reading will be Jeremiah chapter 20 and verses 7 to 18. That's Jeremiah chapter 20 and we'll read from verse 7 to verse 18. That's page 779 if you're using one of the red uh, church book Bibles that you ought to be able to find in the pew in front of you. Page 779. I uh, must ask you to bear with me this morning as I uh, went down with a wee bit of a cold um, yesterday, which is uh, maybe some, uh, which, which is maybe quite good, considering I'm told it's um, Red Nose Day next week, which will, uh, which will uh, mean some advanced pre- preparation for me for that. Um, but uh, So please do bear with me this morning and just now as we read from Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 7 to verse 18. O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Report him. Let's report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonour will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and prove the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the atones the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. Her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Just before we come to look at um, Jeremiah's complaint together, let us pray in the uh, words of King David when he thought uh, about God's word. And he prayed, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. One thing that seems absolutely rampant in our modern culture is complaining. In the olden days, complaining would have almost been looked down on. These days, it is seen as a positive virtue. We all know, don't we, that the person who complains always gets the best deal. These people who complain always seem to be the ones who end up getting money off or the big compensation payouts. Whereas the person who's well-mannered and and keeps quiet often seems to end up with nothing. It can, can't it, almost reach the um, stage where we're actually looking for something to complain about or secretly hoping that something will go wrong that we can cash in and benefit from. We all know that if there's a fly in our soup, then we might well get it for free. Or that if the plane is delayed, then we might get an upgrade or to to stay in a nice hotel, and so on. And then there are some areas where we are actually positively encouraged to complain, whether it's writing to the press complaints commission about some kind of newspaper article that uh, offended us, or whether it's writing to the local council about why our road should or shouldn't have um, speed bumps. In those instances, complaining is seen as one way um, that we as uh, individual people can actually make a contribution. It's seen as kind of part of our right, part of the way that we live and exercise, exercise our responsibilities in a free society. And I need to say that some of these things um, aren't necessarily wrong. And that if I find a caterpillar crawling in my lettuce when I'm eating out, that I will be the first person at, at the counter asking for a refund or for them to, to do something about it. However, our tendency, of course, is to take our culture of complaining over into a relationship with God and to start moaning and complaining to him in the same way that we do in the rest of our lives. I think when we complain in a restaurant, we're generally looking for three things. We're looking that our complaint is taken seriously. We're looking for some kind of resolution. And we're looking for an apology. After all, we're the customer. We're paying for this. And therefore, we've come to expect good service. And so that's what we expect from our relationship with God as well. However, you don't need me to tell you that complaining to God is very different. For a start, we are not paying customers demanding our rights. We are adopted sons talking to our father. Or we are creatures talking to the creator. Or we are convicted criminals talking to the judge. But we are not paying customers talking to a waiter. That is a vital distinction. Nonetheless, there will be times when you will feel like complaining to God. And the prayer that we're looking at this morning is the prayer of someone who did just that. His name was Jeremiah and he was a prophet in the Old Testament. And so, as we look at his prayer, we are going to think about three questions, maybe three questions that you can be thinking of in the back of your mind. 
does God take our complaints seriously? Do we get some kind of resolution? And do we get an apology for the inconvenience caused? And we'll look at this prayer under three headings that correspond to three stages that we might go through when we're complaining to God. They are firstly, voicing your complaint. We'll look at that from verse 7 to verse 10. Then confidence in God from verse 11 to verse 13. And then finally, struggling with despair from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And we will look at each one of them in turn. So first of all then from verses 7 to 10, voicing your complaint. And here we need to do some background work on Jeremiah in order to understand his complaint more fully. First of all, he was a prophet. That means that he was a preacher with a message given to him by God, but it was his responsibility to pass on to others. And in Jeremiah's case, it was a particularly difficult task. His message was one of gloom and doom and judgment. And throughout his ministry, he was consistently opposed by the various political and religious officials that he came into contact with. At various times, he was imprisoned in a a dry well and denounced as a spy. And when we meet him, him here, he has actually just spent the night in the stocks, courtesy of the temple authorities. Secondly, he had been called by God. Jeremiah records how God had told him that even before he was born, that he was chosen to be a prophet to the nations. That's slightly unusual in the Old Testament. Most of the prophets, you see, were just called to go to Israel. Jeremiah was called to be the one who would herald a new era of hope when God wouldn't just deal with Israel, but with all the nations of the earth. Thirdly, Jeremiah seems to have been quite a a temperamental character with a, a disposition towards melancholy. He was quite gloomy. And even his prayers, of of, of which we are looking at only one, reflect his kind of frequent mood swings and the intensity of his relationship with God. Interestingly, he seems to have been a very powerful speaker and very confident and very bold in public, but inside was very sensitive and even prone to depression. And I think all of these three... um, factors contribute in their own way towards Jeremiah's complaint, which in a nutshell is that it is really tough being one of God's servants. Serving the living God can be hard work. It is a lonely vocation speaking the truth in a world where everyone else believes in lies. It is hard swimming upstream when everyone else is um, swimming in the opposite direction. And that's the kind of kernel of Jeremiah's complaint here in verses 7 to 10. His basic point is that God's word has got hold of him. God has called him to be a preacher. And yet when he discharges this duty, everyone ridicules him and mocks him. And it doesn't listen to his God-given message. His complaint is that he feels caught and trapped, even used by God. That's really the meaning of the word deceived there in verse 
7, when he says, Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. The idea is that God has over, overpowered him. He has no choice. He has to preach God's word, because it burns inside him like a fire, so he can't keep it in. But then as soon as he does, everyone mocks him, and he's humiliated and reproached all day long. So Jeremiah feels like he's caught between the devil and the, a, a deep blue sea. If he speaks, he gets abuse. If he keeps quiet, he burns up inside. He's snookered either way. God has him, good and proper. He is hemmed in. He's thoroughly fed up of being the lonely voice of truth in a generation that doesn't want to hear it. And so he lets God know how he feels. And his complaint is a very real one for many of us. Do we let our work colleagues know that we are Christians? If we do, then we risk questions and misunderstanding and humiliation. If we don't, then it burns within us because we really know that we ought. Like Jeremiah, we often feel like this lonely voice of truth in a world that is ignoring the message. And after a while, it's hard not to get discouraged and start complaining to God, being caught in the same situation as Jeremiah here. Then I think there are other areas too where we feel like complaining because of the emotional stress of being a Christian. I guess the obvious one is those of us who are lonely or, or single because we're Christians. If we were out in the world perhaps, we think that we could have any number of uh, partners. But here we are, stuck in the church and on our own. We feel like we've taken the harder option. We've put God first. We are trying to, to go his way and live for him. And yet we seem to be suffering for it. So we feel like complaining to God. Maybe we, we feel like Jeremiah did in one of his other prayers. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? That's Jeremiah 15, verses 16 to 18. And so we need to notice that the first thing that Jeremiah does is he voices his complaint to God in prayer. He doesn't go off in the huff or jack in, in his faith altogether. He doesn't conclude that God doesn't love him or that God doesn't ex exist. He talks to God about it openly and honestly. He tells him how he feels. He pours out his heart. He voices his complaint to God and so must we. So then that's uh, number one. voicing your complaint um, to God. Then number two is confidence in God. In one of the many sudden transitions in this passage, Jeremiah seems to move very quickly from a place of questioning and doubting to a place of utter confidence and trust and even rejoicing as he moves towards verse 11 to 13. As he prays, he's reminded of God's character and his promises and his perspective changes. Um, first of all, as he prays, he affirms the truth of God's character. We can see that in verse 11. 
here he uses a military metaphor. He says that God is with him like a mighty warrior. He was no doubt recalling the promises that God had made to him when he was called. It's maybe helpful if we could have a look at one. So if you could turn back to Jeremiah chapter 1 and we'll look at uh, verse 17 to verse 19. And there as uh, God was uh, calling uh, Jeremiah, he uh, assures him with the following words and commands. He says, verse 17, Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. And here's the crucial bit, they will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Um, recently I was uh, watching the uh, opening scene of the film Gladiator, where the Roman general rides out in front of all his troops on horseback so that they can all see him, and then takes his place um, alongside them and, and puts on, on his armour and fights with them. And the whole film is really based on their loyalty to him and the inspiration that they get from him, so much so that many years later they will remember him and will fight for him so long as he is at their head, inspiring them. And that's the kind of confidence that Jeremiah takes here from remembering that God is with him. The general is not only the one who is remote and uh, handing out the orders. He is also right next to him on the line. And the, the modern Jewish translation of uh, this verse says that the Lord is with me like an awe-inspiring hero. And as Jeremiah prays, he remembers that God is with him like an awe-inspiring hero. He remembers that God has promised to fight with him and for him and that he will protect him from his enemies. God will keep his faithful servant safe from the attacks of those who oppose his word. Then, secondly, once he has this assurance he is able to pray that God would deal with his enemies. You can see that in verse 12. As a faithful servant of God, he doesn't just take things into his own hands, but he commits his cause to God, who judges justly, and leaves things with him. Jeremiah knew that God could see right into people's hearts, and so he was happy to pray for vengeance, knowing that ultimately God would be just. And then thirdly, in verse 13, we see Jeremiah praising God and thanking him for rescuing his faithful servant. There is no doubt that Jeremiah sees himself here as the needy person who has been delivered from the hand of the wicked. And so he rejoices in answered prayer and the difference that God makes. In many ways now, his complaint has come full circle. He started off fearing the persecution of the authorities and complaining that God felt remote and distant. Now he's confident in God's character, in answered prayer, and overflows in praise and worship to the God who is faithful to his servants and rescues them from fiery trials. And I think this is something very important to teach us about the role of prayer in our Christian lives. It is as we pray that our eyes are turned away from our complaints and our current situations and towards God and his character and his promises. 
It is as we pray that we commit our cause to God and we trust in him and ask him to intervene in our lives. As we pray, we are moved to give him thanks and praise and worship. Our minds are elevated and our spirits are lifted. All that talk about insults and ridicule and loneliness is now bearable because Jeremiah has the assurance that God is with him. It is as Jeremiah prays and affirms who God is that he really begins to feel different in himself. The priests, the temple officials who put him in the, in the stocks, even the king himself, don't terrify Jeremiah so long as he knows that God is with him and that he is true to his promises. As someone has said, one plus God is always in the majority. And the way that we can have that assurance is as we pray. So our complaints will be resolved as we pray. They may not go away, but our perspective will change. When we pray, we, you see, we are expressing our dependence on God. And he, he, and he responds to that by giving us a new assurance that he really is with us in the midst of our troubles. That gives us strength because we know that he helps us fight our battles. And it nourishes us as we focus on the beauty of his character. Now, it's true that we might still be single. We might still feel nervous about speaking confidently as a Christian in a pagan world. But we will know that God is with us like a mighty warrior. We we will have the assurance that Jeremiah did, that one plus God is always in the majority. It is as Jeremiah prays that his complaints are resolved. Now, I wish that I could end the sermon there with all the loose ends nicely tied up and say that uh, everyone lives happily ever after and and then send you all on your way praising God and rejoicing. But I can't because it won't have escaped your attention that Jeremiah's prayer doesn't end there. He still has another five verses to go and so do we. And that brings us to our final point which is struggling with despair. Struggling with despair. I think the greatest shock in this whole passage is the way that Jeremiah goes from the heights of praise in verse 13 to this plunging depths of despair in verses 14 to 18. Again, it's something of a mystery how the confident, bold prophet found himself alone in such a deep depression that he cries out to God and wishes that he'd never been born. This servant of God thinks his life so unremittingly bleak that he wonders if he would be better off dead, never having come into the world in the first place. And the way that he does it very vividly is by imagining the scene on the day he was born. His mother was giving birth. His father was was waiting for the news. He waits, waiting for the rejoicing and the festivities that, that, that would surround the arrival of the messenger who heralded his birth. But the messenger never comes. If only, he says, his father had heard the news. Jeremiah muses, if, Jeremiah muses, if only he and his mother had been murdered at birth. And we need to say that this is not just the existential angst of someone, in, of someone questioning the meaning to life. This is someone struggling with the burden of their God-given ministry. Jeremiah is simply cracking up under the pressure of declaring 
a judgment to a nation that is his own and being persecuted and laughed at by the people he loves. He can't even see why God allowed him to be born if his ministry was just going to end in ignominy and shame. And it's no coincidence at all that he's talking about it in terms of never wanting to be born. You see, that's a a deliberate reference back to chapter 1 where where we read and heard earlier on that God had called him to be a prophet and set him apart while he was still in the womb. This may be an uncomfortable message for some of you here, but it is Jeremiah's vocation as a prophet that he was struggling with here. God's faithful servants of genuine and sincere faith really do go through this kind of stuff. Christians really do suffer the bleakness and the despair and the depression that Jeremiah felt here. Now for many of you here, you may never have to go anything approaching the dark night of the soul that Jeremiah describes. And that's something for which you should sincerely and gladly praise God. But on the other hand, what poor old Jeremiah describes here is the experience of some Christians. And I know that some of you here can relate to exactly these very sentiments and what he's talking about. You too have felt the worthlessness and the futility and and the wondering why you were born that he describes. Like him, you've maybe had seasons of trust and praise and thanks, but yet you've also found yourselves plunging back down into the depths. And it is something that, in particular, affects Christian leaders. There does seem to be something about the position of responsibility and the pressures of it that cause people to be bold and courageous preachers of God's truth, like Jeremiah, but yet struggle in private with real boats of despair and depression. And in this regard, uh, particularly noteworthy is David Brainerd, He lived in the 18th century in North America and is particularly known for his pioneering missionary work among the Indians. Not only did he have severe bouts of depression, but he wrote the whole thing down in his journal. Interestingly enough, when it was edited by Jonathan Edwards, some some passages of it were considered too bleak for folk to read about and 36 entire pages of it were left out. A fairly typical entry reads like this. Was so overwhelmed with dejection that I knew not how to live. I longed for my death exceedingly. My soul was sunk in deep waters and the floods were ready to drown me. I was so much oppressed that my soul was in a kind of horror. Here is one more. Was scarce ever more confounded with a sense of my unfruitfulness and unfitness for work than now. Oh, what a dead, heartless, barren, unprofitable wretch I see myself to be. My spirits are so low and my bodily strength so wasted that I can do nothing at all. Now it's true to say that David Brainerd noticed a difference in his depression before and after becoming a Christian. After becoming a Christian, he said that he was conscious of a foundation of electing love that supported him. But even so, he still went through prolonged periods where he, where he explicitly says that, that he couldn't sense God's goodness and care and love at all. David Brainerd became a Christian aged 21. He died aged 29 in 1747 and his influence has been acknowledged on every 
major missionary movement that the world has seen since. You see, God's word, the Bible, never ignores some of the harsh realities of faith. It is very real about some of the depths of despair that its greatest heroes have experienced and it doesn't seek to cover them up or gloss over them in any way, shape or form. They are presented as being part and parcel of the life of faith. It is realistic about them. God's servants do suffer from things like that. So then, what about you? If you've never stood where Jeremiah did, then thank God for it. That is his grace in your life. However, if you are standing where Jeremiah stood, then you need to know that you are not unusual or abnormal. You are actually part of a long and prestigious line of famous Christians, including not just Jeremiah or David Brainerd, but the famous preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, the hymn writer, William Cooper, the commentator and translator, J.B. Phillips, and so on and so on. Struggling with despair. I think this is probably a good point at which to pause and to consider the message and the implications of this uh, passage for us as a whole. I think as we have looked at it, we have seen that it is basically concerned with the complaints and difficulties and struggles of a faithful servant of God. Someone struggling to preach and witness to a generation where they were being ignored. They struggled with the internal pressure of being called by God, but yet also being part of the world that they were called to preach against. God's servant was given a message of judgment that was unpopular to the ears of the people he preached to. More specifically, he preached destruction to Jerusalem and promised that it would be destroyed if it rejected God's message. However, he also brought a message of hope that if the people repented and turned from their wicked ways, that he would bring them back from exile and reverse the punishment that he had planned. You see, Jeremiah looked forward to the arrival of another prophet who was also a faithful servant of God. The New Testament tells us that he wept as he looked over Jerusalem and forecast that not one stone of the temple would, re- would remain on top of the others when God's judgment fell. He prophesied that siege ramps and earthworks would overrun God's city in much the same way as Jeremiah had. He was called by God and yet struggled with his mission. It burned inside him. Yet he also struggled because he was one of us and he felt the the pain of human rejection and the sting of humiliation. On more than one occasion, he cried out to his father because he felt totally desolate. You see, this passage doesn't just talk to us about Jeremiah or even ourselves, but it actually tells us about Jesus. He was the faithful servant of God in an ultimate sense. Perhaps the most acute and relevant question that this particular passage of Scripture helps us answer is this. What did it cost my Lord to become human? What kind of turmoil went on in Jesus' heart when his preaching and his message was rejected? 
What kind of hurt did he feel when he was abused and insulted? Did he ever feel lonely because his, uh, his mission from God weighed so heavily on him? What was going on inside when he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane? How did he manage to marry his faithfulness and fidelity to God with the temptation to give up and go home because he was human? What did he feel like when people ignored him? What did it cost my Lord to share my humanity? You see, this is just about the only passage in the whole of Scripture that gives us an insight into some of the attentions that go on in the heart of a faithful servant of God. Now, we might know a little bit about its intensity in our, our own lives, and I don't want to minimize that for one moment. But Jesus knew all about it. Yet he held the course and kept the faith and kept going to the end. If anyone had a right to complain, then he did. After all, he was the sinless creator of the whole universe who condescended to become human and die for our sins. And yet he stuck at his mission. He stuck at his calling as a faithful servant of God. He trusted in God's promises. He spent time in prayer. He committed his cause to God. He trusted him to rescue him from his enemies and ultimately vindicate him. He's the ultimate model of obedient faith and submission to the will of God. So then, let's return to some of the questions that we started with. In terms of our own complaints, where does this leave us? Does God take them seriously? Yes, he does. We can pray about them and be honest with him about how we feel. Does he give us a resolution? Not necessarily, although he may do, and we will most certainly and most definitely find that our perspective will change and we will become aware of his help and his strength as we pray. And does he give us an apology? No. Instead, he gives us something far, far greater. He gives us a saviour and a friend so we can know that he really cares, that he really loves us and that he will look after us when we put our trust in him. And he gives us his promises that all things, even those things that we might feel like complaining about, work together for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together.